question is I have for you tonight or today, whenever you listen to this, is are you one who takes every word in the scripture seriously so that you'd want to know it? Not only know it, believe it. Not only believe it, defend it. And not only defend it, live it. Is that your life? Is Jesus Christ your life? Jesus Christ is God. He never cast aside his deity. He always was God. He is God. He always will be God. And he's always God. Rightly dividing the word of truth. If they're doing that, that's the place you need to be. If they're not doing that, you need to get out of there. You and I leave the scripture and we don't stay with it. We lose the understanding of what it says. Or we eisegete. We read into the text. This is the, these are things you're not supposed to do. When you stay within the confines of Scripture, you'll never go wrong. I want to say that one more time. When you stay in the confines of Scripture, you will never go wrong. Scripture is honored, the lost are warned, the saints are fortified, false teachers are exposed, and the Lord Jesus Christ is glorified. Here's your host, Josh Fritz. Welcome to this edition of the Godcast with Josh Fritz. This is Josh Fritz. Right now, uh, it is at the time I'm recording this because I'm not live. I am, it is Sunday afternoon, almost 3 p.m. on April 19th, uh, 2020, and our friend, um, Mr. Flowers, Dr. Leighton Flowers, is going to be talking on a hunt for a hyper-Calvinist, so I'm going to review this video as it's happening, but I'm going to be recording it. So, um, of, of course, he's interacting in the chat as well, as you can see above me. It says there, feel free to post questions here related to the topic. So I'm going to do that if I can, um, if I have a question for him as it unfolds. So we're here for the interim as this happens. So I have a few, uh, I have an hour or two slated here to interact here. I'm going to try to do it. Uh, and we're going to review this as it goes. So step back and enjoy, I guess, so to speak. Hopefully, don't enjoy, but be be one to learn. You know, don't. I'm not the. I don't take. I don't. How do I? How do I want to say it? I don't. I don't. I understand people have gotten to where they've gotten and what they studied, and I take things and I listen to them. But when I listen to something. I'm going to weigh it with the Word of God. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to weigh it with the Word of God. So if something comes up and I hear something that I don't think is accurate, we're going to we're going to use our ears, right? We're going to use our brain, and we're going to apply the Scripture to what we're hearing. So 
we know that in the scripture as being Bereans. So we have to carefully examine the scripture. And uh, I'm curious as to what he's going to say because he always rails against uh, the doctrines of grace. And uh, mind you, I'm, I don't call myself a Calvinist. I don't do that. I don't like those labels. I just believe what the Bible says. So it's going to take him some hoop jumping to jump through and make his claims as to what he does. And he typically rails against Calvinism. So, well, he rails against the doctrines of grace. And uh, we'll see what this entails. He might. This might be an interview that he's having with this gentleman here. Um, we'll see what happens. Because they, they're going to rail against it and saying that it's an error. So I'm curious to see what takes place here. So in the interim, we're going to be waiting. It says here, waiting for Soteriology 101. So obviously he has John Calvin there in the middle of his screen. And the minute this goes live, then we'll we'll discuss it. So this is going to be like a live review, but recorded at the same time. So if any of you don't are not familiar with the BibleThumpingWingNut.com, uh, feel free to check out that website biblethumpingwingnut.com you're going to find a whole host of podcasts there definitely uh, worth the listen to um, and also any other re- Christian ministry there and, and regarding blogs are there as well so as we wait for Mr. Flowers and this shouldn't take too long 3 o'clock is a slated beginning so I'm here waiting for him it's 3 o'clock now so we'll see if he jumps on. So how is, uh, hopefully everyone's Lord's Day service was good today. Um, oh, here we go. I really don't. <laughs> All right. Welcome to Sociology 101. That, as you can see, sitting with me is, is Eric Kemp. Uh, welcome, Eric, to control. the program. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I couldn't help but play the little jingle. That was a little jingle that somebody wrote for me back when, like, when the first, like, three months of my program and uh and somebody it on should Fiverr. stay there it yeah. should stay back there <laughs> it should just but it had it had the word hyper in it and i couldn't i couldn't right. pass it up somebody's okay, hyper. Fine. even if you right. like john piper as long as you're not too hyper oh, it's, stop it's, it's gold stop. man it's pure gold that phrase makes it worth it all right fine i see what you're saying by the way i do have to say that i'm super jealous of your quarantine hair like this is just this is out of I'm gonna buzz this. So they're getting into the pleasantries of talking. You believe that? First no. time to cut hair. She cuts my dog's hair, and so I figure she has at least some experience. And we wanted I wanted my wife and I to be able to still, uh, uh, you know, be okay with one another. And so it was better for my daughter to do it than my wife. Smart hair. I'm gonna minimize the volume until he gets into the content. 
hair while we're watching. Matter of fact, we can just say, what is God predestined for your hair to look like? And we'll just do a whole episode on uh, Eric's Just hand her the clippers hair. and just go, look, just go it's at it. God's hands just say, just say yeah. honey, it's predestined what it's going to look like <laughs> anyway, so you just go for it. <laughs> so uh, that's great. Well, those that don't know Eric, anybody, I don't know where you've been if you don't know who Eric Kemp is, because Eric has been uh, with us for several years now here at Sociology 101. Has been. Uh, and uh, helping us writing articles and kind of uh, uh, keeping things uh, somewhat uh, organized on the social media pages and all the fun stuff that we uh, deal with on a regular basis. And so whenever you try to contact me and I don't reply, it's, it's really Eric's fault. Um, that that's pretty much what I'm announcing right now. So that's if you have any problems whatsoever with, true. <laughs> with my lack of response to you, I it's can't really, even. it's really. All right, I'm going to keep minimizing until they get into the content. So obviously they're going to be talking about Calvinism and predestination. Well, um, we are, we are watching Sidechat and have it go on the side. And Eric, you can actually, if you take it off a of private chat and click on public chat there in the top right oh, corner. You can here see, we go. You can see people's chat as well. I don't know that you can actually type in. See if I can interact with these people. Characteristic of uh, StreamYard is that my guest can't type in uh, their I don't think you chat. want me to. I think that's the... <laughs> you, don't, you don't want to want you type it in. Well, the reason I wanted to do this broadcast um, is because Eric has written a two-part series. It's actually going to be a three-part series. He's working on the he third is, part. Where he is, he's gone on a he's going on a on a, a journey during this. Um, yes, it was a great pose, by the way. I loved it. Um, he is going on a journey uh, to to hunt for a very elusive, very hard to spot. I mean, this is worse than the Loch Ness monster. This is worse than Bigfoot. It's the reformed Sasquatch. It is the reformed Sasquatch. That's what this is. This is the elusive hyper Calvinist. And um, and so we're on quarantine. So Eric just figures, you know, I'm going to go searching for this beast because it has to be out there somewhere. All right. So they're it's looking so for somebody that's a Calvinist. I'm by myself, it's a hyper Calvinist. So I'm social distancing yeah. where I go. There, I'm hoping they make the definition of hyper Calvinist. Yeah. Hyper Calvinist, isn't it? That's right. <laughs> it's just the thing. Um, and so that's what we're going to talk about today is oh. one, what is a hyper Calvinist? And then two, go. where are they? Um, and then and then three. How could that possibly possibly how could that possibly inform us with regard to the the uh, ever so often heard accusation of misrepresentation from our Calvinist friends? Uh, because many of you who've been around long enough know that we are accused quite regularly of not representing Calvinism correctly, um, which we have to remind Calvinists and our friends who are Calvinists who have joined us. You're always welcome here. Just stay cordial, and you can stay around forever if you just if you're just nice. We'll let you get we'll let you get away with anything. Just be nice and stay stay as long as you'd like. Um, ask questions, push back, whatever those kinds of things are. That's fine. Just oh, it's going to happen. Uh, be a Christ-like <laughs> person. That's, that's all we ask. And we also ask for those on our provisionist side. Please do the same. Oh, I've Pre banned so many non-Calvinists. <laughs> you probably banned more non-Calvinists than you more. Have Calvinists. Way yeah, more. Some of them are really, really mean. Yep. Unfortunately, um, guys, let me just say that something on that real real quick because Eric is also helps us with moderating along with about five or six other people moderating the, the chat. Um, and poor guy, I'm so sorry I gave you that task. I'm sure you appreciate having the, the fun responsibility of, of looking over people's, uh, <laughs> you get like, like your, your skin just gets thicker. Like you develop like 
this Iron Man armor you just kind of put on. You know what I mean? You press the button and it just and then you like deal with it and then you just take it off and it's fine. Okay, so let, let me just address this for a second before we get going on this uh, this hyper Calvinist hunt. Okay, um, if if we if we truly believe that free will exists, which we do, and we believe that that Calvinists have free will, don't you think it's good to probably try to persuade them using respect? and argumentation that's sound and reasonable it just makes more sense now they may believe everything's predestined so they don't really care how they treat people or whatever i'm not saying calvin's really that. some of them may be that way and they may be really rough on the edges. i know i've heard them trust me i hear it i hear it a lot um but we believe no we, we care actually persuade people who were like me once i was a five-point calvinist staunch calvinist I want to try to persuade them. And I can't do that if you're shouting them down, calling them heretics and, you know, running them off. Okay. So be nice to our Calvinist friends for my sake, if nobody else's, there's a lot of other pages out there that rail on Calvinist and call them all kinds of names. Go over there and just say whatever you want to about them. Well, at least he's there. being gracious. Like there, but hey, I can't control those pages. So just Isn't that grace irresistible? You want to wait page. I am beseeching you on behalf of Eric and the other, uh, the others that moderate the, uh, the chat, just be kind, just be nice. Um, that's an important, uh, note to make as we start off this thing. So there are Eric, so I'll say, what I'll say is oh, you ahead. don't realize how many lurking on the fence Calvinists there are out there. And we get, I get the privilege of seeing the messages all the time that, you know, talk about how uh, the ministry has helped them um, to either moderate their Calvinism or to stop being Calvinists. And they'll just lurk and they won't say anything and they'll just watch. Um, and if you're mean, that just confirms everything they're already told about us. And they go, yep, see, they're the bad guys. So I don't need to listen yeah. to them. But if they're nice, they kind of like, can't, if you're nice, they kind of can't call you the bad guy. Like yeah. by being, I'll, I'll put it, I'll put it a little bit more strongly by being mean, you're giving them what they want, which is an excuse to not listen to you anymore. They, they, they want a reason to be able to discount the arguments you're making and what you're saying. And, and if you're rude, they just go, yep. See, <laughs> I, see all my friends are right. Everything I read is right. These guys are the bad guys and I don't need to listen to them because look how mean they are, but it, you don't how many times. And, and I'm, I'm kind of bad cop. Like we have <laughs> talk about the other um, admins and moderators of the group. We have like this little side chat. And we all have nicknames. I'm bad cop, right? So I'm not even the nicest one. I'm kind of the one that like, sometimes I, I, I you feel like I have the, to, you got to drop the hammer when it's sometimes, sometimes like I feel like I got to drop the hammer. So I'm kind of, they, they're super nice. Right, they're just talking about refereeing chats. See, right now I'm in their chat and I'm talking to them. So, yeah, it happens all the time. Well, even in the side chat, look, there's Christina right there. She's saying exactly being nice is what got my attention. Um, because, and, that, and that's one of the things, honestly, the reasons that one of the reasons I continue to engage with um, the dividing line program. I try not to mention too many names. You know who I'm talking about. But um, that would be James be White. Because the contrast is really so stark that I, I continually get new followers and new uh, reform or new, new uh, former Calvinists coming over saying, you know, I, I really thought Calvinism was what the Bible's teaching. But when I heard contrasted with 
with your discussions with other people, it made me at least open to hear. Um, and so it really does make a difference when you can, uh, can show uh, some level of respect to people and recognize that they're well-intending. Um, Cal Calvinists, for the most part, are trying to interpret the scriptures rightly. They are trying to understand what the Bible teaches. He's they being a little gracious. I'm really surprised at this. Normally he's not. Are, uh, just emotive and emotional people that just can't handle the hard teachings of predestination and, and those kinds of things. And so they, they really do think that they're defending the, the, the inspiration of scripture and, yeah. um, and, and, the, and the glory of God. And so they have good intentions. Obviously, we think they're wrong in their uh, interpretation. But keep in mind, when, when you, even when your kid or a friend or a neighbor, if they, does, they do something wrong, but you know they mean well, doesn't that help you to treat them a little bit more, a little bit more with patience to say, okay, they meant they meant well when they did that, um, but they just they just have a wrong perspective here, um, yep. and so that that makes a big difference for sure. Interesting um, take. Well, let's just get into this discussion, um, and and there's a lot of questions on the side chat, and and I will try to pull some of those in as we go. Um, and, and if, if it's related to what we're discussing at the moment, so that, that'll kind of gear you in. If, uh, if you comment on something that we said 10 minutes ago, I may not be able to pull it in, but if you comment on something we're talking about in the moment, um, I, I will try to pull it in, especially if it helps uh, guide the conversation. So I, I appreciate those who are posting already. Um, and I, and I appreciate, uh, the, the willingness to push back even on, uh, what we're saying, uh, as, as you speak, I, I welcome being pushed back on. So, uh, Eric, tell us in there your hunt is. here, first of all, you probably need a good working definition. What is this elusive hyper-Calvinist anyway? Yeah, I've seen a few definitions, um, but usually they surround, and, and, and different writers that I'm, uh, authors, theologians that I'm reading kind of put different emphasis on things and, and you know, add little aspects of what a hyper-Calvinist is. Um, basically, anyone, a hyper-Calvinist is uh, anyone who takes Calvinism too far. So they overemphasize the decorative will of God, uh, the secret will of God. They overemphasize it um, to the detriment of his commands. Um, his, his um, no, no, wait, his permissive, what, prescriptive versus, Prescriptive versus decreative will, yes. Sure, yeah, revealed versus <laughs> yeah. secret. They right. overemphasize the secret will to the detriment of the um, revealed will. They, they overemphasize his sovereignty to the detriment of man's responsibility. They, they overemphasize election to the detriment of, um, to the detriment of the well-meant offer of the gospel. And so then what hyper-Calvinists will do is they'll, they'll say like, there's no point in, in uh, offering the gospel. In fact, you should. That's not true. That's not gospel. true. Come on, come uh, on. They can't respond and they can't do that so Come it's on. out of bounds and we don't do that sort of thing um and and so that's the the gospel uh, is what the gospel is what needs to be preached the results are left up to god why wouldn't we preach the gospel they overemphasize yeah they've out calvin john calvin and so yeah, yeah, they, yeah it may be and it, it seems like to me it i mean I, I don't know what you've seen in your reading of this eric but it almost seems like it's almost like the, the gospel is central the, uh, to sharing the truth world. of what you know, people have, need. You're in the political world, you've got so to to diminish evangelism is not the is not the position most of these people hold. That's not true. The the right of them is 
um, a white nationalist or whatever. I mean, there's, you know, and so we, and we do this in the theological world too, on different viewpoints. And it seems like on this particular scale of, here he goes equivocating, i.e. sovereignty, i.e. free will, all those kinds of things. Um, wherever you are on that pendulum, right. Um, it's like whoever's the to the spectrum. left of you. Yeah. That spectrum, whoever's to the left of you, I'll just call them a hyper. Calvinist. And so that whatever accusations people are bringing against those people to the left of me, I'll just say, well, that's not my fault. That's their fault. That's their, that's their problem. I really don't like so it when he uses politics to, to influence his interpretations right. so of how exactly what they do. And theologically, so I, I theologically speaking. That, and I, I know we've done, you, you've gone over this a bunch about, you know, how the Pelagian, semi-Pelagian thing is just, you know, a boogeyman to label someone and and so that you no longer have to listen to them so i was looking at this and and going okay so then if i bring a criticism of reformed theology and you say oh that's hyper calvinism okay who is a hyper calvinist then and what are they saying then? like if if i'm if my criticism is in is uh off i i have bad aim on my criticism my criticism is off. Yeah. Aim my criticism in the wrong place, and it actually should be on the hyper Calvinist who says these things. Okay. Who should be on the scripture? Things? That's where your aim should be, no, sir. They can't. It should be I'm on talking, the scripture, not on a person. The, the most cordial, respectful, intelligent. I mean Calvinist that. I mean that, that I with sincerity with. too. They cannot or will not name anyone who says these things. There's no hyper Calvinist church. There's no hyper Calvinist pastor. They don't identify this way. They don't use those words. They don't say they're a hyper Calvinist and they can't name one who they think goes too far. Here's a guy. Go to the scripture. Stay with the scripture. I, I don't go. We don't go after people and so align ourselves with people. Okay. People so are why? every why single person at one point is going to be wrong. Don't exist in the real world. If it's the reform Sasquatch and I can't find one. Why do they use this term hyper Calvinism? And me personally, I don't. Was, what I went into in writing these things were, was my idea that I wanted to see if it was true or untrue. I wanted somebody to prove me wrong. Was that uh, they use it to control the language, number one. So that's not re Reformed theology, that's hyper Calvinism. That's not Calvinism, that's hyper Calvinism. So they, can, they control the language. And what that does is that allows them to punt to hyper-Calvinism, uh, transferring the criticism of Reformed theology onto some scapegoat, so then you never have to actually deal with the criticism. Right. So I bring a criticism, you don't rationally deal with it, you just go, ah, and you dismiss it off to these other people who don't actually exist, and then you never actually have to answer the criticism or deal with it. So that's what I saw, right. thought was happening, and then I looked into these articles, and uh, that's exactly what they do. So, See, I'm, so I'm going to ask a question. Talked, uh, it mentions Westboro Baptist, um, but here's here's what I would even, Westboro Baptist is such an extreme. They're nuts. Know, those I would agree with them in this aspect. Group. Those people are nuts. But at the but, same time, the, usually when I heard the word when I was a Calvinist, and I heard the word hyper Calvinist. Immediately, I would think anti-evangelistic. That that's what I equated with uh, hyper Calvinism was. If you're anti-evangelistic, then you're a hyper Calvinist anti-evangelistic meaning um, see calvinists even I, I don't call myself personally a calvinist but i hold to the doctrines of grace well minimize them further but as far as evangelism is concerned evangelism is a part of the what these people would call themselves calvinists and any it's a part of their lives 
evangelism doesn't mean going to street corners so much or going out there and preaching in open air. It's evangelism is starts in your house. It starts with your children. It starts with your coworker. It starts with your friends. It starts with as soon as it starts right out of the home. That's where you start. That's where evangelism begins. So anybody that I know holds to Calvin and Calvinism. I know for a fact they're they're evangelizing their home. They're evangelizing their local neighborhood. They're evangelizing wherever they go. You're speaking Christ. That's evangelism. So just want to make that point. I'm going to mic them back up. A lot of times Calvinists don't even want the name Calvinism associated with somebody like the Westboro Baptist, even though they affirm Calvinistic doctrine. Um, and so that that's kind of seems like with the... the yeah, the Westboro Baptists into, are just extreme. you're talking about, it's like pinning the jello to the wall because... So I'm going to ask him a question. Yeah, oh, well, this, is the scripture is the final authority or John Calvin or any current Calvinist. theologian? But yet they don't even fit the definition of anti-evangelistic. I don't know if he's going to answer that way. I guess right. uh, adjective for those who are, you know. I think I think that I stayed away from associating anything Calvinism with Westboro Baptist because that immediately just poisons the well. Like you're, 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 you're it's it's a boogeyman that everybody thinks are a bunch of bad actors. I wonder and how they're going to react to my question I, I, if they I, do. I, I, I want to. I, I think that shuts the. We were talking about charitable, being charitable and shutting off people's minds. I think that shuts off people's minds immediately um, if if you mention those guys. So I kind of stayed away from. Well, they're you know hyper Calvinists or Westboro Baptists, and they're consistent reformers and trying to go in that direction. I just didn't didn't really want to go there just because that, that's such a toxic name. Um, so I and I just wanted to hear what they were saying, you know, f- from themselves. You know, if if they brought up reform, you know, Westboro Baptists, if you know Challies or Rob Johnson or or somebody had um, Michael Horton had brought up Westboro Baptists, I'd have been like, okay, yeah, I mean, great, let's yeah. talk about them. But they didn't, so. Right. Um, there, there, I'm just inter, inter, interjecting here from the side chat. Um, says, what flowers, and I would guess you too. I don't know why he's just blaming me. I mean, you're the one who wrote the articles, so I don't know why you I'm You get all target. the blame. I know. Yeah, what's no, that's wrong fine. with that's, that? That's, you, you do something like this, look, and hey, then you're... I get the blame. <laughs> so what, what Flowers is doing here is like a Calvinist trying to attribute open deism or open theism, I guess is what they mean, to him. So how would you respond to that? If somebody says, hey, Kemp, you're, uh, you're, you're doing exactly what the Calvinists are trying to do when they're trying to call us open theists. Yeah, I'm not even calling reform uh, Calvinists hyper Calvinists. I've I've done haven't done that once, and I don't do that once in my articles. Um, I I completely and I, I'm glad for this question because then I get to clarify. I totally accept that uh, reformed folks are saying, "Hey, I think we should evangelize." Hey, I don't think that we should uh, not follow God's commands or admit that we can't follow God's commands or some overemphasis on the secret will of God or some, uh, you know, man, man isn't responsible for what I do. So I can do whatever I want because I'm not responsible. I, I totally accept that uh, reform folks aren't doing that. I'm glad reform folks aren't doing that. And uh, I completely uh, ag- accept and agree that, that uh, reform folks are sincerely saying, I don't believe those things. Oh, that's good. fine. That's good. That's not the criticism that we bring about hyper Calvinism. That's not the criticism. We aren't saying you are hyper Calvinist. You don't evangelize. Obviously, they do evangelize. That's of course true. Interesting. I just made that, that point. Do. I'm glad that they are like that. I'm glad um, to hear it too. A, you know, a description that Rob Johnson gives. Um, I'm sorry, I keep saying Rob Johnson. Phil Johnson. Phil, Phil, Phil Johnson. Phil Johnson gives in his article 
that he's like, well, hyper-Calvinist churches tend to become like this. I'm glad that the vast majority of, of Reformed churches aren't like that. That's great, and I, I'm so happy they're, they're not. The criticism that we, that we bring is that it is consistent with your theology. You don't believe it. Your churches don't act like it. You don't act like it. Totally acceptable. Now tell me how it's uh, irrational and inconsistent with your actual theology. Let's have a discussion about how it does how it doesn't logically lead to that. Now, I can know, easily the, the, refute the, that. Michael Horton in his article, that's my my part 2 article. Michael Horton admits that this is our argument. So Michael Horton, not me, Michael Horton admits that our our, our criticism is that Calvinism logically leads to this uh, this um, a, a lack of uh, impetus to evangelize. All right. The the emphasis to evangelize. If you're a Calvinist, if you're a person who holds a Reformed theology, you know that God's in the driver's seat. God puts the message in us to go bring the good news. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, right? You you have to have a preacher present. You have to have somebody share the gospel with somebody for God to work with that message, right? So think of the parable of the grounds, right? Sowing the seed of the word of God. You're planting a seed. God's going to be the one that's going to cause it to make it grow in the heart of an unbeliever. Evangelism is so important. Why would we hold it with theology and not share the message and the truth of the gospel? Evangelism is key. Evangelism is, is, is key. It's key to how we conduct ourselves, but it's also key to us sharing it. We, have, we can't hold the truth to ourselves and not share it. That's what I'd push back on. There's, there's a clear definition of uh, someone who holds to uh, open theism, for example. There's, it's clearly what they're denying. They would say, we, we do not believe God has exhaustive knowledge of every man's uh, choices uh, with, in the future or something of that nature. They may have a nuanced way of defining that. Um, and whereas, whereas I would hold to a view that would say, I still do affirm um, omniscience and in, in, uh, even future free choices of creatures. Um, and so th there's a clear distinction there. Uh, and I can point to you actual open theist scholars like Greg Boyd. Um, where can you do that within the Calvinistic, hyper-Calvinistic distinction? That's, I think, the point that that's Eric exactly That's exactly it. Where, where is the actual rational objective distinction the, the decision with a difference, what is the actual difference in the theology? And all I honestly, the, 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 the uh, article that's going to be coming in these, these two, all they did was argue, and this is, you know, this is Michael Hart and this is Tim Challies, right? This, these are, you know, the, the upper echelon of thinkers. I actually like Michael Horton a lot. And the, they, their argument is just, well, you just ought not to go that far. And it's like, that's, great that doesn't answer the criticism well and what's ironic about that to me eric is that the only reason that people would go that far is if god decreed them to go that far i mean i'm not trying to be mean but it's true it seems like see being trite with the, the doctrines really bothers me perspective unless they affirm libertarian freedom of the will and not the sovereign decree which i don't know how you call that person a calvinist by any stretch of the word but nevertheless um, if, if you've got a situation where a person believes all things come to pass, like the Westminster says, according to divine decree, then the only difference between those who adopt Calvinism, um, who become hyper or anti-evangelistic, and those who adopt Calvinism who don't become hyper and are evangelistic, is the fact that God's decreed for 
these people to be anti-evangelistic and these people to be evangelistic. Am I missing something there? Is that is that inaccurate? No, no. And 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 in fact, you know, those are some of the questions I have for Michael Horton in, in one of my articles. Is that, you know, could it be that we have the same goal? Okay, that we want to rightly balance the fact that God is sovereign over creation. Check. Whatever that we can discuss what that means, but that that God is in ultimate authority over creation. Check. And that man is responsible. We we share yeah. the same goal. Yes. This is what we want. Um, but when you say, could it be? This is my question for our reformed audience here, for Michael Horton specifically. My question is, could it be that once the Westminster Confession of Faith says, God from all eternity did by most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeable ordain whatsoever may come to pass, that as long as you say that, as long as you affirm that, then even if you say and believe, yet so as thereby neither is the God of author of sin. So even if you believe that he does so somehow, in some way, without being the author of sin, could it be that our criticism is, once you say the first part, just saying the second part doesn't make it so. That once you say the first part, the fact that God is the author of sin, ordains evil, however you want to put it, that that logically follows after the first statement, even if you affirm it doesn't, even if you claim it doesn't. How? That is what our criticism it's, it's, is. It's kind of like, it kind of like, it, to me, it kind of sounds like you're saying, in one, in one sentence, you're saying, um, bachelors are not married, but bachelors have a wife. Right. Okay. And, okay, so, and so if you acknowledge that that's our criticism. I'm going to pause him there because it's live, but I'll catch up. But you're using two separate. This is what he does. He does this all the time. He'll use an analogy that's outside of what's in the scripture, right? So he's using, he just affirmed marriage, right? A bachelor has a wife, and he's trying to, it blows my mind when he does this. Backing up, God is not the author of sin. We know that. But in the same vein for him to make that argument that, if he knows everything, right, he's using the Westminster Confession of Faith there to saying that God knows everything in, before in advance, and at the same time, he's not the author of sin. That's just the absolute truth. To try to ferret that out in your mind, in your heart, is really a waste of time. So let's back it up so I can make a proper critique here. I'm going to back up a little bit. Bachelors are not married but bachelors have a wife. Bachelors are not married, but bachelors have a wife. No, that would make them a husband. A husband has a wife. It's two different things. I know what he's trying to say, and it's not working. Let's back it up some more, though. I do want to back it up. So I'm going to fall behind a little bit, which I don't like to do, but we'll see. See if I can get f as far back as I can. And even if you claim it doesn't. That is what our it criticism is. Kind of like it. Kind of like. Ugh, gotta back it up some more. Um. Okay, that should be enough. Could it be that once the Westminster Confession of Faith says, 
God from all eternity did by most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeable ordain whatsoever may come to pass. Exactly. That's correct. These people of Westminster Confession of Faith had that correct. He did ordain everything that is to come to pass. He did allow, he allowed sin. He allowed it. Why? Because he provided redemption through Jesus Christ. How that makes sense in a human mind, it's very hard. Think about this. God himself taking upon our sin and bearing it to the cross. Our minds cannot fathom that. Think of what the Lord said. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God the Father can't look at sin. Right? He turned away. And all the sin was laid on Jesus Christ. We can't understand that. Why not sit there, think about that, and realize that, wow, God actually cares about horrible creatures like we are and understand that we can't understand it all, period. Think of the triunity of God. It's clear in Scripture. You can't explain that, though. It's hard. It's three and one. How do you explain three and one? To us, one, two, three, four... That's it. We was one God, three persons. That's just one example. This is the other. Man is responsible for his sin. Yes, God allows sin. He's going to deal with it, but he uses it for uh, the purposes that he uses it for is for his glory. Think about Joseph, right? Put through all that trouble by his family. I'm just citing off examples that I have in my head. God used that for good. Why? His family was saved through famine. Then the famine that's there, he's saved by God. God delivered Israel. So these are just examples that are in my mind. What's intended for evil, God means it for good. So sin could be evil. It is, obviously. God, in his mercy and his grace, he uses it in such a way to bring glory to himself. Think about the lineage of Christ. That's another example of how many times that um, the lineage was almost it was almost messed up. You think about that, go throughout the Old Testament, and you see, even through so much evil, God still had a way. I think of, uh, one thing I can think of, David's sin with Bathsheba. You can think of Rahab, the prostitute, the harlot, right? There's a purpose in this, to preserve, and the lineage of Christ would come. These are things that are so evil, these people did things that are so horribly wrong, but God had a way where he intended for good, and that's how the Lord came. So thinking of just those sheer examples, I just to know that God's not the author of sin. No, he's not. He's not. As long as you say that, as long as you affirm that, then even if you say and believe, yet so as thereby neither is the God of author of sin. So even if you believe that he does so somehow, in some way, without being the author of sin, could it be, that our criticism is, once you say the first part, just saying the second part doesn't make it so. That once you say the first part, the fact that God is the author of sin, ordains evil, however you want to put it. He does That that logically follows after the first statement, even if you affirm it doesn't, even if you claim it doesn't. That is what our it criticism does, it's is. Kind of like, it kind of like, to me, it kind of sounds like you're saying, in one, in one sentence, you're saying, um, bachelors are not married, but bachelors have a wife. Right. Gonna, and okay, so, like, and so husbands if you acknowledge have that that's our criticism, <laughs> then you would have to answer the criticism in some other way besides saying, yeah, but I don't believe God is the author of sin or he does it somehow without being the author of sin. 
that doesn't answer the criticism, that doesn't assuage the logical train you set in motion. And right. I've never it seems heard like to me the, the, an answer the difference to that. between the, the, the difference between the anti-evangelistic Calvinist and the evangelistic Calvinist is not their belief. Both of them believe the ex they're virtually the same thing. In other words, they're both affirming the same thing because you'll hear a lot of times you'll say, you'll hear the Calvinists say, well, the, God ordains the ends as well as the means, which is just another affirmation of determinism. That means God determines the ends and the means. I mean, everybody, everybody on the Calvinistic side believes that. That's exhaustive yep. divine determinism. And so and fatalists believe that. I mean, e even strict, hard deterministic fatalists is all things are determined the men's the means as well as their ends everything's determined so just saying oh oh god ordains the ends as well as means doesn't answer the objection it just affirms the reason that the objection is being raised um and so what's the difference between the anti-evangelist and the the evangelistic calvinist it's not their belief they both believe god ordains the ends as the means god determines everything what's the difference the difference is god's decreed one of them to evangelize and the other one not to right i mean the no, one's probably being disobedient and the other one's not going out there. One's being disobedient, the other one's actually following through on the Great Commission to go into all the world and teach and preach, making disciples. We're told to do that. If we're not doing that, then we got a problem. God doesn't decree one to do one or the other. He allows it, yes, as responsibility before God, our works before God after salvation do count for glory, absolutely. I, I, I understand what he's trying to say here, but it's not coming across as clear. God, the, the, the difference is in how they take that belief and play it out in their real world. And the, if, yeah, if and, free and, will and, is not true, then the reason that the anti-evangelist is choosing to be anti-evangelistic is because ultimately God has decreed for his nature to be such that when he hears Calvinism taught to him and he accepts it, that he 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 he, he that natural implication causes him to stop evangelizing and to stop feeling the need to evangelize because I guess God decreed for him to do that. I mean, and 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 all it doesn't decree for us to stop evangelizing. I don't know where he gets that idea from, uh, other than it could be a couch potato believer. You know, that's really all I can come up with. But it's like if this is how the gospel should work, right? We're told about the gospel. What? Th uh, let's see. The one that I, the one that I come to knowledge with is John four, when the the woman at the well. What does she tell? She finds the Messiah, right? Or he reveals himself to her. Jesus reveals himself to her. And what does she say as she leaves, going back into the town? See a man that told me about everything that I've done. She went and told. Think of the people who were healed. Some of the people that were healed were told not to say anything. And what did they do? They went out and told everybody. Do you see what I'm saying? God comes into somebody's life. They're going to tell somebody. You're going to talk about the one you love. Whether you're lean towards Calvin or you lean towards Jacob Arminius, it doesn't matter. What matters is that a believer is going to tell the truth regarding salvation and regarding new life. It's not a matter of one being decreed to sit down on the couch. Obviously, God knows they're going to sit down on the couch and not get up. He has some discipline to mete out in that person, obviously. That's not the focus, though, of what he's saying there. It's not the focus. And what is amazing to me 
and and please, I would love a different answer than this. I would love a better, robust answer than this. But all both Horton and Challies and Phil Johnson do is they use some phrase to just say they went too far in the spectrum. Uh, so Challies says over uh, excessive application. And uh, Horton, I think he says overemphasis, or maybe Phil Johnson says overemphasis. They use some phrase to say excessive application or overemphasis or too much stress in one area. So they say they just swung too far on the pendulum. They just went too far on the spectrum. They need to come back. That is the only thing they say about how the difference between the two, that it's an overemphasis and overstress. That doesn't answer the criticism. That isn't enough. You just can't say, well, they shouldn't go there. That right. Okay, they shouldn't go there. Great. I'm glad you believe they shouldn't go there. I would call that a blessed inconsistency. That's amazing. I love it. Don't go there yourself. You shouldn't go there either. Great. But that doesn't answer the criticism. I'm not asking, should people do this? I'm asking, is it rational? Isn't it consistent with your theology if they do? Yeah. Um, well, I wanted to play a little um, video clip here so that it's not, you realize it's not just us who talks about this elusive hyper-Calvinist, but actually Calvinists themselves recognize this quandary. Um, and so there's this little video clip that's uh, pretty popular on YouTube. It's popular just, I mean, it has 54,000 views. Um, and it asks the question, what is hyper-Calvinism? And so we're not going to play this whole thing. If you're interested, you can go look that up and find it yourself because they do give some of their own perspective about this issue in this uh, in this discussion, but I just want you to hear what he's affirming. This the gentleman that's on this uh, on the screen right there, I think that's David Hall. Um, what he affirms, uh, and he's a Calvinist, by the way, um, when he says this, and it, it's kind of an interesting exchange. So let's listen. Speaking of Calvin, uh, many Calvinists in our day uh, who are actually convinced of their Calvinism are called hyper Calvinists by their enemies. So tell us, what is hyper-Calvinism, and is it really a danger today? May I just say that, jokingly, uh, before there were blogs, uh, we had a reformed website in 1994, uh, and we offered a cash prize for the discovery of three things, UFOs, uh, Social Security for a person my age, which now I might actually get, uh, and uh, living, breathing hyper-Calvinist. Because I'm not sure they exist. I could have, I could have, I could have won that one because they hate me. Yeah, but but I but I'm not sure I'm not sure you I'm not sure you are one. No 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 they hate me. Right. So so there's a difference. Right. There's there's a difference between uh, the the branding we use for our own thoughts, the branding that is that is stuck upon us, and uh, that that is a, a nice pejorative term to use. A hyper Calvinist is usually just somebody who is more committed to their reform principles than uh, the speaker. Uh, but I, I have honestly never met in over 60 years of my life a living, breathing soul who says we should never do evangelism. I have. Yeah, I have too. There's, have. there's some I nests have. of hyper-Calvinists. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, those are not Calvinists. Those are just weird ducks. You're yeah. right. They're not. Oh, they're weird ducks, but yeah, they're You're right. They're, they're not legitimate Calvinists. But okay, and so there, there you got a, kind of the same quandary that we're bringing up here uh, in their own circle. I thought it was so hilarious that he 
He says, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if you are a hyper Calvinist there, James White, because <laughs> they're back in that day, back in 2009, 2010. This is actually a 2017 video, but back in 2009, 2010, those who followed uh, James White's ministry back in those days. And this is before I even started the podcast. And so uh, I really wasn't in a part of all this, but um, there was this big brouhaha over James White being labeled a hyper Calvinist because uh, he denies the well meant offer, meaning that you know, he, he explains away God's offer or appeal or desire for the salvation of all people. Um, and men like Phil Johnson, the guy you were last guy you were just listening to is a part of the grace to you ministries with John MacArthur. He wrote an article, a primer on hyper Calvinism. And that's one of the things he lists, which you might be able to get into a little bit, Eric, because I think you've been going over a little bit of his article, but I, I think that little video clip kind of captures what we're trying to bring up here is the elusiveness of how how do you define what a hyper-Calvinist is? You've got the, those who are true Calvinists saying, I don't even want to have anything to do with them, don't even put the label Calvinist on them. And it makes it really difficult to really define what this group of people is and if they are, exist. Are, you mean are. Yeah, and that's why I, it's just a scapegoat. It's a scapegoat to um, not answer the criticisms that are brought against um against reformed theology. And it's, it's amazing to me, and especially Phil Johnson's uh, article, it's amazing to me the distinctions he makes and how he, you know, we, we hear, we joke all the time, we hear all the time that, you know, you don't understand Calvinism. And it makes me think that maybe sometimes also they don't understand non-Calvinism that they don't actually know what our disagreements with them are that we say something and then they hear something else and they answer it well i don't do that or that's too far uh you shouldn't believe that or calvinists shouldn't believe that and that's great it just doesn't answer the criticism even as sometimes they really like repeat the criticism they, re they repeat the basis of our criticism and then they go, oh, yeah, but it's not, it's just, it, it's amazing to me how they don't see, but that's where I just want to be like, well, that's exactly what we're talking about though. Uh, and so that's, uh, there's, you know, just sort of at the beginning of the Phil Johnson article, there's several of those. I mean, we can go through it um, if yeah, you want, or ahead, if you want yeah, to go ahead and pull up some of the, I mean, whatever you want to kind of go through, I want to thank Joel there for your donation. Appreciate that. Um, kind of go, go through a little bit of that with us because I think Phil in his article, at least gives us from one Calvinist trying to tell us a definition, because that's what we're saying. We're looking for a definition. And then he, he wrote this article. And then he, I think once he realized that it actually included some of his own friends, like James White, it's like he, he began to back off of it. And it's like he was backpedaling. At least that's the way I perceived it anyway. Uh, I know I'm biased on that point, but it seems like he, he defined what hyper-Calvinism is. And then he goes, oh, wait, my definition included one of my buddies. Uh, right. backpedal. And it, that's what it felt like, at least to me. So, yeah. Take sure. Sure. So, so what's interesting to me, uh, you're referring to an article that, that Phil Johnson uh, wrote. It, there's, there's uh, kind of a, la I, what I would say is that there's a lack of self-reflection as to what our criticism is. So he begins the article and he says, and this is called, if you want to look this up, everyone who's listening, this is called a primer on hyper-Calvinism. And uh, it's still up there on the internet, even though maybe he's backed off of it a little bit. He, he left it up. Um, and he says this, he says, virtually every revival of true Cal Calvinism 
since the Puritan era has been hijacked, crippled, or ultimately killed by hyper-Calvinist hyper influences. So he's saying virtually every revival of true Calvinism has been killed by hyper-Calvinist influences. By God's decree. <laughs> For sure, by God's decree. Okay, sorry, and, I have to keep putting that in there just because it just makes Right, and he's kicking really... against, right, so right, he's, so he's kicking against the goads, right? Who are you to answer back to God? He's answering back to God. Yeah, we'll for some him. reason, God has ordained for hyper-Calvinism sure. to flip into Calvinism to make it die back out. And so I, we have to ask why. We'll that answer doesn't, back, we'll that let him doesn't answer make back to any God, sense. And we'll answer back to him. That doesn't make any and sense. We'll say, and I'll ask, could it be, and, and, and I definitely want to hear your, your thoughts on this because this seems to be, to me, how things go outside of theology too, is that could it be that the tendency of systems of thought is to become more extreme in subsequent generations as those generations make it their own, right? So let's think of like uh, the, de the Democratic Party, right? The Democratic Party of Bill Clinton, I'm old enough to remember the Democratic Party of Bill Clinton, I remember Bill, in the 90s, that party is gone. Like that party doesn't exist. And that's because the children of that Democratic Party have taken it over and they have moved it farther left. And uh, I don't know why drawing just in general, outside com uh, comparisons you, uh, the to the views, on this, outside views of the scripture to compare, he does this constantly. I don't, this gentleman, Eric Kemp, does it too. Why would they do that? Stay with the scripture. I haven't heard one reference to the scripture or to, to, to make their claim correct. Not one. That is, is because young people want like some sense of belonging, right? You, young people want something to belong to and something to fight, and there's something wrong, and they, they, they have all this energy, and they, they, they want to make a difference in their lives, and they want to make their lives, uh, uh, make their lives matter, and, and they give themselves over to something greater than themselves. And, and so the, the move left has been driven by young people uh, who want this utopia, right? That socialism gives you a utopia to fight for. And that is really intoxicating if you're a young person. So, so the development of thought has been, it's gone more extreme. Uh, take abortion, for example, right? In the 90s or 80s, 90s, abortion was safe, legal, and rare. Oh, we need it to be legal, but it's, we know, we also kind of acknowledge it's not the best thing, so safe, legal, and rare. Now it's shout your abortion. Right? You have uh, female celebrities on stage going, Killing my baby was the best thing that I could ever possibly do. It has have done. nothing to do and, and with so now the it's, topic now it's at gone so hand. Much okay, so I say that parallel too, uh, and and this has this is where I say this parallel to to compare it to Reformed theology, where, as you know, apples uh, and oranges. Reformed theology, the resurgent, the young, restless, and reformed. I mean, it's, the book is literally called "Young, Restless, and Reformed." Restless right. has came out of their easy believe easy believism parents. Their parents went to these easy believism churches and they were searching for some meaning, something to belong to. And Reformed theology came around and did a great job. There were great guys like Piper and who captured this sort of spirit and, and transformed it into this young, restless and reformed movement. Could it be that the children of these people, the children of these guys are going to want to take it and go farther with it to make it their own at, as these things tend to happen? Yeah, and, what, and one example of well-known individuals that, that happened with is R.C. Sproul and R.C. Sproul Jr., exactly. where you have R.C. Sproul Sr., who is a, a little bit more balanced. He's a classical um, uh, approach, um, apologetics, um, 
you, you have him being very careful with not calling God the author, uh, creator of sin, those kinds of things. And then you've got R.C. Sproul Jr., who takes more of a presuppositional approach uh, and says things really provocatively like God creates sin um, and, and just doesn't want to back off of it because he's more consistent within his theological grid of Calvinism than his dad was, but possibly and arguably less consistent with what the scripture actually reveals because the system itself becomes very much um, kind of the driving force. And you become, like you said, you, you be, once you become a part of a movement and a brotherhood of others, then, then, and, and you get a lot of backslaps and the attaboys, um, it's easier to feel, um, to, to feel like you can push the envelope a little further. Uh, right. Once like you, the, once you have RC Sprawl saying no rogue molecule, you kind of, it's, it's natural. You may think they shouldn't, you may think they ought not, but it is natural for the subsequent generation to take the no rogue molecule idea and go, why don't we just go farther with it? If this is where our parents were and we want to be separate from our parents, we want to make this thing our own. Well, what does no rogue molecule actually mean? And they take no. it farther. Could that be why? Yeah. That because, because Calvinism logically ends there, that the subsequent generations, the children of the movement, this statement tend says. to go there. Thomas uh, Richards on the side chat made question. a comment that really, this is good, Thomas. Yeah, this is the kind of stuff good. I'm looking for. Um, he so, says, interestingly, the hyper-Calvinists cite some of the same scriptures about the hardening as provisionists do to prove judicial hardening. Both recognize the logical inconsistencies of the popular forms of Calvinism in regard to evangelism and the well-meant offer in regards to these scriptures. The hyper-Calvinist goes further into Calvinism beyond Calvin, and the provisionist goes away from Calvinism. This is a great point because yep. th this is why on my dissertation, um, I won't say who this was, but you would recognize his name because he's a pretty well-known guy in the Southern Baptist world uh, who's written books on the subject. Um, he was my reader, one of my readers, one of five of my readers for my dissertation. And he really pushed me on my view of judicial hardening because he says, well, Leighton, you sound like the Calvinist here. Um, because you sound like God is actively blinding people by using parabolic languages and, you know, those, these kinds of things. And that's what the, that's what the hyper Calvinists say. Um, and you can't say No, that. it's what the Bible I says. Tell him. I said, Dr. Sonzo. Um, Who hardened listen, Pharaoh's this heart? Is, this is, I think the scripture does say that God hardens people, but he doesn't do it arbitrarily or he doesn't do it for no apparent reason before they're ever born because he doesn't love them or something of that nature. No, this is this is an act of a judge who is striving to bring about his plan through the redemption uh, of these people who do rebel. And so he's doing this for a good purpose, and it's actually for their good. It's actually for the purpose of them stumbling but not beyond recovery. They may be provoked to envy so that they too may be saved. So it's not under certain condemnation. And once I explained it to him, he goes, well, yeah, I can kind of see where you're coming from. Okay, but he still was very uncomfortable with the concept or idea of God actively hardening but those verses are used by the hyper calvinist to say look here is god actively reprobating people the he's the giving them over to a depraved god. mind i don't this is god saying i don't want these people to be saved i've never wanted them to be saved and so the way the provisionists like myself take these same verses out of you know romans 11 and john 12 and about 15 other places about the hardening of israel um those are the verses that we use to to explain 
how and why God would cut somebody off in their unbelief and, and blind them with parables and those kinds of things so as to bring about his purposes, like the sting operation with the you know uh, police right. officers and those kinds of things that we talk about. From our perspective, those are so vital to understand the, the strategy of God. But from the Calvinist perspective, if you're, if you're going to use those verses, you can't be a moderate Calvinist and still take those verses into consideration. You've got to explain them away or ignore them. And that's exactly what I think Thomas is pointing out here, is that the hyper-Calvinist uses those same verses to, to support their hyperism, that God is actively out there uh, reprobating, hiding people from— Yeah, I don't subscribe to that view. doesn't want them. And I, I think that's a great parallel. Yeah, absolutely. And so, uh, yeah, that, that, you know, what I would love our reform brothers to ask themselves is, as Phil, John, as, uh, Phil Johnson says, virtually every single time, uh, Calvinism re- comes back and then dies off and is killed by hyper-Calvinism. Why is that? Now, here's another example of that. Personal holiness. He says that not hyper-Calvinism... There. Maybe they're not redeemed to begin with. Article, Johnson says that hyper-Calvinism acutely is in, the, process, is in the, um, the practice of acutely minimizing the moral and spiritual responsibility of sinners. So acutely minimizing the moral and spiritual responsibility of sinners. Maybe, I would love this question to be considered and answered, maybe Calvinism becomes hyper-Calvinism virtually every time, because Calvinism implicitly minimizes the moral and spiritual responsibility of sinners. and hyper- It does not. Calvinism does not in- minimize the importance of personal responsibility. It doesn't. In fact, it maximizes it. Why? <sighs> Take it into this, the scripture-wise. You, I've yet to hear them go into the scripture. He softly mentioned it earlier, but... Personal responsibility is there. It's in the scripture. I would I would go alongside it. They want an answer questioned. God is sovereign in salvation. He's going to bring those people to himself, right? What does it say in the scripture? There is personal responsibility. You have to you have to preach to people. You have to tell them their need of Christ. What are they going to do? They're going to not just going to say you're just going to let them go and that's it. And there what he's doing and he's he's lumping the the thought of Reformed thinking, or reform thinking, reform theology, and he's using it in a way that would say the Calvinist or the reformer thinks it's wrong. It's not wrong. Then again, we know what salvation is, though. Salvation is God's choice. Salvation is God's work in the believer, the one that would believe. He grants repentance. He grants faith. He's gracious and kind to save, right? That's God's work. Now, where does man's responsibility come into play with that? God holds man responsible for what? His sin. If somebody's coming to you, God prepared that in advance for somebody to come and tell you about the gospel. That's just the nature and reality of salvation. And for him to just blow blow evangelism off and say that we blow evangelism off, we don't think it's important. It is important. Personal responsibility is important. But me deciding... To change my life is not salvation. Me deciding in my heart, I'm going to do what's right, I'm going to repent, I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it because I did it. That's not what we're talking about here. Personal responsibility is a constant a constant relationship that God has put in us that we are aware, that we are aware of ourselves before God, that we're 
creatures of habit, of sin, that need rescue. We recognize our rescue. That's the personal responsibility aspect. Excuse me. Excuse me. So, uh, when when, when I get that, when I listen to that, it just... They don't understand it. That's really what it amounts to. Hyper-Calvinism simply takes what is implicit and makes it explicit or acute, as Johnson defines it. So Yeah, that, yeah that's very interesting. He says acutely, but if you, as long as you do it like on the low-low, you're still a historic Calvinist. Yeah, because that's, and that's been my biggest um, complaint against Calvinism is that yes. they remove the blameworthiness of man because ultimately you've got people hating God because he first hated them. And then, of course, you've got somebody like a Michael Horton, a more moderate kind of Calvinist, going, no, 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 that's not what we would say. Uh, we wouldn't say they're hating God because God first hated them. We, we would believe that God has a general love for all of people. Um, so that's not really true. But then you start pressing them, and you go, okay, wait, you believe in total inability, right? And Michael Horton would say, yes, of course, all people are born unable to want to follow God or to believe in the truth. It's amazing how I know he would say that. First. He would affirm that. You believe in unconditional election, right? Well, yes, before the foundation of the world, God did choose them before the foundation of the world. Correct. And you believe in irresistible grace, right? I mean, you believe that God regenerates the person he's chosen and brings them to life so that they'll believe? Oh, yeah, yeah, we'll believe Correct. that. Okay, so what's the implications of all of those three affirmations? That a person is born unchosen by God, born without the ability to believe the gospel for reasons beyond his control, unless he's given an irresistible grace. So how are you avoiding that, that charge? You're, 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 there's no logical way for you to avoid the charge that you're making people unblameworthy. I mean, you're, making, you're taking away the blameworthiness of the sinner because you're... We are born in sin. The blame is already on us. It's already on us because of Adam. The curse was laid on Adam. So the human race is cursed. So the blame is on us. Man failed. Ultimately, having them reject the God who first rejected them, uh, rejecting a, a provision that was never made for them if limited atonement is true. Um, and I don't know how they can get away with that, honestly. And, and they don't. And what's so fascinating about limited atonement, I'll talk about this very briefly. If God saved everybody, it would be unlimited atonement. We could do whatever we want and sin into oblivion, and we'll still get to heaven. That's unlimited atonement. Jesus Christ goes, dies on the cross for our sin, saves us, and we can live whatever kind of life we want to live. Whereas limited atonement, and I'm I'm just I'm not looking at definitions, I'm looking at what the scripture says here. Limited atonement means either Jesus died for the elect, those that God the Father gave him, or he died for nothing. That makes unlimited atonement would make Jesus incapable of saving everybody. Because why? People still commit sin. People still murder. People still steal. And they go to their grave unrepentant. So that means they're going to heaven? No. Limited atonement just simply states that God elected those that would believe, that would believe based on God's granting of repentance and faith to those that would listen to the gospel, repent of their sin, turn from their sin, and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, and not in their own power. And they cease from the practice of sin. Right? That's the the effectual call that God has given, calling them out of their sin, calling them out of their former way of living to live for him. And the limited atonement means Jesus died 100% 
100% successful in his death, burial, and resurrection for the church of God, right? For those that would believe. Whether, whether they're a Jew or a Gentile, whoever they're going to be, there are believing Jews. There are believing Gentiles. And those are the people that God died for. Those that truly have repented and have been forgiven their sin. That truly continue to follow through on what the gospel is and obeying the gospel, obeying the truth of the gospel. Right? That follow through and evangelize. To do these things. Those are believers. They're found doing the work that God called them to do. They're not deviating. Right? They may sin, but they know there's an avenue out of that sin to confess their sin because he's faithful and just to forgive us. Right? There's a relationship, a rapport. An unbeliever doesn't have that. And you cannot tell me that 100% of all people that have ever lived on the face of the earth from Adam until now or from Noah until now Right from Adam until now, that everyone is saved, because it's not true. That's what limited atonement refutes it, speaks against. Are you familiar with the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network? On the BibleThumpingWingnut.com are several podcasts for your perusement and your enjoyment. Biblical Christianity's Marketplace of Ideas. Podcasts that we have on this network are the Bible Thumping Wingnut Podcast with Tim Hurd, Be a Berean with Michael Coughlin, Christ the Rock Church Sermons with Austin Hessler, Bible in the Raw with Dustin Seegers, the Polemics Report of Pulpit and Pen with J.D. Hall. The Intelligence Briefing with Pulpit and Pen with J.D. Hall and others. The Godcast with Josh Fritz. The Christian Commute with Seth Dunn. The Shine is Lights podcast and the Kids Cast podcast with the same host, Adam Staub. And finally, our newest network partner, John Williams with the Servant's Heart podcast. That and much more are on the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. Go there today. The Godcast. Going to a world that is dying. Is perfect salvation to tell. Here's your host, Josh Fritz. Welcome back to the podcast. Let's continue the review. This, the, my reading so far is that they don't try. They don't try to logically get away from it. They just try to um, uh, rhetorically get away from it. You ought not to say it like this. You ought not to take it this far. You ought to stay on this side of the spectrum. And right. that's great, yeah, but that yeah, doesn't prevent believe, it. And it doesn't, yeah. Right. Well, I was going to say believe like a Calvinist, but but preach like an Arminian, as the old saying goes, you know, that, that, no. that kind of mentality of, right. uh, of practically speaking, yeah, you need to live like free will is true, but theologically speaking, we know it's not, you know, it, it just. Why be a believer? Right. We're, we're, we've been given, we've been given the great commission. We're told to go do this. So he's saying to believe like a reformer, right? Believe like an, uh, a Calvinist, let's say, and act like an Arminian. Meaning, to me, what an Armenian would be, based on my experience, would be you're pleading with the sinner, 
You're wanting them to come to Christ. You're pleading with them. You're pleading with them, and you're saying, say this prayer, go through with this, and become a Christian, right? No, that's not the case. Seems to go that way. And Benjamin points out there, if total inability is true, wouldn't God need to actively reprobate people? You wouldn't, God wouldn't need to actively reprobate people. You just need to leave them alone. And that's what we've talked about before is, is why put a blindfold on a corpse? If, uh, if, if, a, if a man is born dead spiritually in the way the Calvinists say he is. Ephesians 2 explains that. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. Then there's no reason speaking in parabolic language, sending a spirit of stupor and all the other hardening text because that person's already hardened. <laughs> what, do you, what do you have right. to harden? I mean, how does a dead heart grow more hardened? It's already dead. Um, and so, yeah. God makes it alive, gives it a, a heart of flesh. Benjamin's pointing out, I think, the log- one of the logical fallacies of that, that perspective. Um, what are some other things that you found in your readings with maybe with maybe go back to Phil Johnson's article or maybe some of the things that marks of a hyper Calvinist, if you will, that um, that would help us to say, OK, here's the things that that good Calvinists, when I say good Calvinists, I mean evangelistic Calvinists right. um, are telling us telling their their Calvinistic following don't go this way don't go don't go too far here because that's that's the badlands so to speak um, talk to right so he has like right at the beginning he has in his article he has like three kind of main points the three main definitions of hyper Calvinists and the first one is that uh, hyper Calvinists tend to stress and we mentioned this kind of earlier but I would you know uh, love to to display uh, what I think is a, you know, uh, this conundrum that that uh, Johnson doesn't answer. He says uh, it, it correctly points out that hyper Calvinism, hyper Calvinists tend to stress the secret or decorative will of God over His revealed or uh, perceptive will. So they stress the secret will over the revealed will. And see, see what I mean? He's not trying to make a distinction with the difference between historic Calvinism and hyper-Calvinism. He's not trying to show how hyper-Calvinism gets historical Calvinism objectively, rationally incorrect. He's saying that Calvinism is just a spectrum and hyper-Calvinism goes too far in one direction. They just stress it too much. And here's my question for you. And and so I'm kind of reading in between the lines here a little bit. I'm reading into this a little bit and you tell me if if I'm off base here, but if I can read here between the lines here a little bit, it seems to me that Johnson is implicitly admitting the logical conundrum between God's secret will and revealed will, wherein God commands you you don't sin, but then secretly decrees that you will sin. Right? He seems to admit that a logical that 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 is a logical contradiction that exists, and is just saying, don't try to square that circle because you might become a hyper Calvinist. Um, am I am I off there? No, I mean, that, that's exactly what the video we played, what, two or three years ago when Piper was asked that question. He was saying, it's better to, it's better on this question to be more biblical than Calvinist. <laughs> we were like, we jumped all over that, of course, because uh, he seemed to be insinuating that it's not biblical to be a Calvinist. And obviously he wouldn't, he wouldn't say that as a five, right. seven-point Calvinist that he is. But what he was trying to get to was it's better to let, don't let the logical implications of your Calvinism to take you that direction. Is what it seems to be trying to argue because he recognizes that um well i mean it's the very first question that people ask when you're introduced to tulip it's yes. the first question i asked when i was introduced to tulip it's the first question 
95% of people asked me when I was recruiting them into the Tulip bandwagon uh, back when I was a Calvinist. Um, it's, it's, well, why do we evangelize? Why, why witness? Why, why would... We're told to. That's why. I get what they're trying to say with regar regards to, and they're wrong here, is to affirm that Calvinists don't evangelize. They do. Or to say that we're not supposed to evangelize. We do. The whole point is that the results of salvation are left up to God. That's the, that's, we're just supposed to go out and tell. We're supposed to do our part. We're told to do that. Scripture reaffirms that. Go and tell. Don't be, don't be one that sits behind and does nothing. Go and tell. Live the life. Do the life, right? A believer is going to be found doing. A believer is going to be found not just listening, but doing. Doing the work. So I don't know where he gets off on this. Would we do that? Why does the brain go there? Um, the brain goes there because the implication is, well, if God's already picked who he's going to save, and he is irresistibly effectually going to bring them to salvation, regardless of my activity in the matter, um, then why do I even need to be active in the matter? Because we're commanded to do that. That's why the results are left up to God. I don't mean times I want to repeat myself on this. We do it because we love our God. God is God. The love of God. What the love of Christ? Reading. I think it's Second Corinthians. Compels us. It it compels us to do that. Why? Because we care about those. We want those to come to the knowledge of the truth. God has to sovereignly, and this is what He does. He uses the Scripture to convince and convict with the work of the Holy Spirit to make somebody alive, to regenerate them based on what they're hearing of God's word. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So it wouldn't be a question in my mind that God uses people. And if he does, and if you're not being one that's not evangelistic or doesn't go out and tell, God's just going to push you to the side and use somebody else. God's purpose is to save his people from their sin. And if one person fails to do that, that is sin on their own part. And God gets somebody else to reach that person, that particular person in which he's going to use. And then the answer to that is because, well, God commanded you to, and therefore now your motivation is not love, it's law. No, it is love. Love for our fellow man. Do you have a burden for somebody? It's not following the law. There's nothing to do with that. And that becomes a problem because... The Bible seems to indicate that love is supposed to be our motivator for evangelism because that's the motivation for the cross. Uh, and so you have people now being motivated out of obligation um, and law versus out of actual love for and um, a desire for uh, appeal to be made because it's through that appeal that, that's being right. made. That appeal is grace. It's the grace of God. Um, and that, that seems to be the mark of what I see from more of a hyper tendency is to kind of downplay the offer or the appeal aspect of Calvinism um, to where, or, or excuse me, of Christianity in general. Like, yeah, we're supposed to preach to everybody because we don't know who the elect are, but it's not really an offer here. It's not really an appeal. As Has he read Isaiah 55? I'm sure he has. Has he read Matthew 11:28? Those scriptures implore the sinner, right, to come and, and, and be invited into it, to understand. At the same time, we recognize that God does the work.
first Corinthians calls it, as Paul calls it in first Corinthians five 20, um, that Christ is in us making his appeal be reconciled to God. It's not really an appeal because, um, God doesn't make appeals because that makes God weak because he's just namby pamby asking right. for people to do stuff. And that just makes God into this weak namby pamby God. And so God doesn't make appeals. God, God, commands and he he brings what he commands out if he wants it to happen he'll make it happen by golly and um wouldn't you say the invitations in the word of god and this is how i understand them they're there it doesn't make god weak it may, it holds man responsible god's invitations in the word of god indicts man right think of jesus right when he's going on the way to the cross or he's in that that on that way to going there, how he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I wanted to gather you in like a hen gathers her chicks. Why? They missed the Messiah. God, God's, God's upset, trust me. But at the same time, he's going to accomplish the purpose in saving people. So make no mistake about that. Um, and and that, that seems to me to be kind of the mark or the central theme of what is tending towards hyperism. Right, and I think that people ask that question. It's always the first question, like like taking it a level deeper. I actually I think that people ask that first question because we intuitively know that our actions make a difference. We just we just know it is intuitively true. It is axiomatically true in our lives that what we do like matters and makes a difference. We we, we know that that is true. And so when come, someone comes around and tells us, well, that's not exactly true, um, in order to make that, like, in order for that to, for us to process that in our brains, they have to create these two categories where it's, no, it really does kind of matter in some way, but then there's a secret way in which it doesn't matter. See? Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> and so I think that's why people ask, ask the question. But and in one of my articles, I ask this question too. And this is, again, one of those criticisms that I would love to hear an answer to, okay? And, and it starts with a premise and then it asks a question and you can, you know, tell me my question is wrong. You can tell me my premise is wrong, but if which individual, here's the question, here's the, uh, the, the, the question here. This is the, um, the premise. If which individual God saves and who he does not save is up to him and him alone, Correct. Okay. Yes. Is that true on Calvinism? It is. Seems to me. Yeah. Right. Has to be right. Yeah. Will this effectual salvation be hindered by any lack of evangelism on our individual parts? Right. Like, so if I individually decide not to evangelize, will his effectual salvation, which is up to him and him alone, be affected at all? Absolutely. If God is sovereign, and God always gets what He wants. That can't be true. Two things could either happen. Two things. Actually, one thing. I'll say one thing. I said it earlier. God will move you out of the way and bring somebody else. Period. Right? Will it? So then, the, then the other side. Flip the coin. Will it be affected by heaps of by uh, heaps of evangelism on our parts? No. Those people will be saved whether we heap evangelism on it or don't evangelize at all. So, if that is all true. It would be perfectly rational and, cor and correct for me subjectively to decide I'm never going to evangelize. And I can be fully confident that if Reformed theology is true, God's elect will still be saved. Right. And that's, and that's... Now, 
from what I'm gathering, what he's saying, he's trying to pit the position of not evangelizing. Obviously, we know it's wrong. I would think he would be in agreement with me that evangelizing is uh, critical, really, to people hearing the gospel. But if God in his power wanted to sovereignly save somebody, and they were all alone, he's going to use every purpose to reveal himself to them through the scripture, through somebody. So to say that, and this is where he's taking, he's taking the hyper-evangel, sorry, hyper-Calvinism to the point where they don't evangelize. If they're not evangelizing, they're in sin. Calvinist or not, Arminian or not, right? If if you are one that doesn't believe in in, um, evangelizing, then you're in trouble. And that's the pushback I would always give because they would always say, well, God, you know, God ordains the ends as well as the means. And, and I would say, well, then if, if my decision is not to get involved, then that means he did not ordain me to be the means. Right. Um, and so I can just individually, right? right exactly. Individually. In other words, you may say, okay, somebody has to evangelize that elect person, but it doesn't have to be me because that would be, that would be sin that person regardless of my involvement. And so instead of you having an actual impact on whether people hear, you can actually you can actually use that as an excuse. Now, I, I, it's I, not an excuse. Maybe Calvinists would would or not admit this, but I've actually heard some Calvinists uh, admit this in broadcast before who were intellectually honest enough to say they have allowed their their view their view of sociology to cause them to pass on a an evangelism opportunity. Uh, because of the difficulty and then the the thought in their brain, well, you know, God's sovereign. You know, this it didn't work out this time. No, that's wrong. Um, that's and I wrong. I just don't really feel I, up ideas to it. Have, ideas that have is consequences. Wrong. Yeah. Ideas so, have consequences. Yeah. And so I've heard, actually, and it, this happened to me um, a, a few times throughout my Calvinist time, where I remember, specifically remember where I was sitting, when I, I really felt, hey, I need to go talk to that that guy. I really feel like God's put that person on my heart. And there was some distractions and some things. Well, I've got this test thing I've got to go study for. And and I remember thinking, I remember contemplating to myself, eh, should I go talk to this guy later? You know what? If it's ordained, God's going to give me an opportunity. God's going to give me an opportunity. I'm not going to do it right now. Do it and, right and now. Really That's what you're supposed to do. Opportunity to talk to the guy. But I'm just thinking to myself, if I would, if I wasn't a Calvinist, in other words, if Calvinism hadn't been taught to me at that point, and I had that feeling like I had in that library to go talk to that guy, if I didn't have that thought in my brain, hey, if God's ordained it, then he'll he'll give me another opportunity. Um, if I didn't have that, would I have said, you know what, I'm going to take this opportunity because that guy's life could depend upon me speaking the truth. I mean, I need I need to be willing to engage here. And so that, those are the kinds of just, that's just a little, obviously a little antidotal kind of thing that happened to me with one experience. And I'm not trying to say it always happens that way or all Calvinists ignore that, you know, voice telling them to go talk to somebody. I'm just saying, couldn't that be happening all over the place at different places and times in people's life um, where their view of sociology is causing a lack, if nothing else, at least a lack of urgency about spreading the good news or and this concept of, I, have, I would agree I with have that a role to play here. Yeah. I would agree with that. I, I just in short, exactly the sure. Next thing that Johnson says in this article, I, and I don't think that when they go looking for these answers or they see this in themselves, this lack of 
desire to, to evangelize and they, they see this happening and they go to looking for answers. I don't think it's enough, helpful enough. I don't think it answers the question. I don't think it gives them that impetus back for their, uh, the, the highest, you know, reformed thinkers, theologians to just say, well, you ought not, you ought to, I don't think that's enough. I don't think that answers it. And, and, you know, he, this is basically what, uh, Johnson says here in, in, in the next part, he says, this is the second thing he says that uh, is, is defined as, and this goes to that question of why do I need to evangelize, like just a subjective, what happens if I don't or do talk to this person? He's saying, he says that he defines hypercalvinism as it is a denial of the gospel message includes any sincere proposal of de- de- uh, divine mercy to sinners in general. So hypercalvinism is... Uh, and it is a denial that the gospel message includes any sincere proposal of divine mercy to sinners in general. So my question is, what does the word sincere mean? Yeah, that's a really good question because how how can a Calvinist, even the modified form like Michael Horton or Phil Johnson or whoever else you might want to put in that category, I don't know who, who would be in that category either necessarily, but... Um, how would you say it's sincere for God to not choose somebody before the foundation of the world and actually to choose for their, to be the Esau I've hated them salvifically. If they're going to interpret Romans nine that way, then to say, okay, but there is a way in which he sincerely is making an offer to them. This is kind of the history of the debate, by the way, for those because God is of, sovereign. Of why because this God is God. Even among Calvinists, there's a big debate among Calvinists back in the 20s and before, 1920s, 30s, and before. There was this. You know, there are vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor that are more uh, who affirm that's also found universal extent of the atonement and those kinds of things. And you can see some of this in David Allen's book. And but but the but the big part of the issue is in order to make a genuine bona fide offer of something to somebody, it has to be there for them. Um, and the illustration I've always used with my four kids is, as I've said, um, okay, I, I've got I've got four children. I walk in with three presents I purchased for them. But I just know that my youngest is the type of kid that wouldn't ever do what I'm going to ask him to do. So I know I really don't need it for him. So I just buy the three presents. And I hold them behind my back and I walk in and I say, if all of you will come give me a hug, if whoever gives me a hug, I will give you a present. And of course, the three oldest come and give me a hug because I know that that's the kind of persons they are. And I know that, that of course, the youngest one's on, you know, PlayStation or whatever else, and he doesn't come. Okay. Um, And I didn't purchase the gift. Well, even the offer itself is disingenuous because I have said, if you do this, I will give you a present. I didn't buy a present for that, that child. So I've just made a disingenuous offer regardless of my knowledge of what that kid would do. I, I don't like I it when he draws parallels. Purchased for him. They don't and make this sense. This is a big debate back in the day, is that if you're going to offer somebody, if you're sending the gospel to all creatures, like the Bible says to do, then there has to be a provision for them. And if there's not a provision for them, you can't make the offer. Otherwise, you're sending out messengers to lie for you. Hey, God loves you. He wants you, he wants you to believe in him. He's provided this for you. Nope, not for most of you. He hadn't. Um, that's where the problem becomes, and that's why there's this debate. There's a love that God has for the world, right? 
This is the love. He sent his only begotten son into the world. It's the fact that God would even send a savior to us. We don't deserve it. Even among reformed theologians on the extent of the atonement um, versus the application and uh, all those kinds of issues that come along with this, because it really does get to the point of the, the, the genuineness, or like you say, the sincerity of God's provision and love for people. So, so, so then the difference between a Calvinist and a hyper-Calvinist is not necessary. isn't the, the, actual doctrine um it's it, you know as couched in limited atonement it is how you say it so again part of my original thesis was they're using this terminology of hyper calvinism for language control to control the language of the debate so if you so what what johnson is saying here is that as long as you don't explicitly read deny the, the bible message is sincere then you're a calvinist but every Calvinist can can go on to, and of course, in our view, this is what they're doing. They can go on to implicitly deny the gospel message is sincere, and that gets Phil Johnson's stamp of approval. Like, like it, it's amazing to me. You know, I we, we see all. I see uh, most of, if not all, the messages that you receive on social media, and I see a lot of uh, the things that are going on. The, the people that are like pushing back, pu pushing back against you. And a question I, I I have asked before, and I would love to to ask uh, people haven't answered and have people actually reflect on this question is why do you think that we are arguing against Calvinism? Do you think it's because like we're bored and we like need something to do? And like, it's, it's just like this thing that we, like, we don't like it and we're like emotional about it. And it's just, you know what? It, it's us versus them. And we love the us versus them. And we just love to argue. Like, what is it that not. you think that we're doing here? Could it be, that we believe that Calvinism decreases the sincerity of the gospel. And can you like objectively step outside just for a second, just step outside for a second. And can you admit that if that's true, that's kind of a big deal. You cannot deficiently, let's go back to what he said there. Cause that's the gospel is the gospel. Let's go back. I want to go back. Cause this is, I want to make sure I, I got it right. To, to ask uh, people haven't answered and have people actually reflect on this question is, why do you think that we are arguing against Calvinism? Do you I think you're arguing against Calvinism because you are fixed in the view that you are in the driver's seat for your salvation. And any other way defeats your purpose of taking the glory for yourself for salvation. That's how I perceive it. Do you think it's because like we're bored and we like need something? I don't know if you're bored or not, but if you're genuinely trying to understand Calvinism or if you're trying to understand the sovereignty of God, if you're trying to trying to understand biblical principles, you're gonna ask those questions and that's good, fine. I'll try to learn. Thing to do and like it's it's just like this thing that we like we don't like it and we're like emotional about it. I don't know if you're emotional or you don't like it. You would have to say that yourself. And it's just, you know what, it's us versus them, and we love the us versus them, and we just love to argue. Like, what? I don't like to argue, but if it comes to the Scripture, show me in the Scripture where Arminianism makes sense or where provisionism makes sense. Show me. Not that I subscribe myself to John Calvin, but the doctrines of grace are implicitly there. What is it that you think that we're doing here? Could it be that we believe that 
Calvinism decreases the sincerity of the gospel. Calvinism decreases the sincerity of the gospel? What kind of a question is that? The sincerity of the gospel has already been defined. The gospel is Jesus Christ. The good news about what he's done. The sincerity of what he's done. John Calvin doesn't enhance it. Neither does he make it insufficient. John Calvin is just another man. Right? The Apostle Paul would say the same thing. He's just another man. The gospel of Jesus Christ stands on its own as the test of time to tell us exactly our need for a Savior. The bad news is that we're on the way to hell, right? We're born in sin on the way to hell. But in God's mind, that might not be the case. That's the whole idea behind the sovereignty of God and how reformed, how the reformers came to that. They realized through the understanding of the Scripture, through the application of the Scripture, that salvation in God's mind is a done deal. He, know, he knows whom he's going to save and draw to himself. He's going to use the very people that he's called, effectually called to himself to propagate the gospel and share it with people that are the ones that he's going to bring in. Other sheep have I. That's what the Lord said. Not going to be able to lose them. He'll lose none. The gospel, in God's mind, is a done deal. Jesus came. He preached about himself. All the Old Testament pointed to Christ and to him coming. Man had a sin problem. It was covered by the sacrifices for Israel and even for the Gentile. Even the Gentile realized that through Christ, our sins would be washed away no longer held against us, removed from us, justified. Everything regarding salvation is through Jesus Christ. So Calvinism does not hinder it. Reformed theology doesn't hinder it. God's going to accomplish his purpose in salvation, no matter what system of theology you hold to. And can you, like, objectively step outside just for a second, just step outside for a second, and can you admit that if that's true, that's kind of a big deal? That it's kind of a big deal if there is a system of theology out there that makes the gospel message insincere. I just said that. I did not know he was going to say that. And that's what he said. No. God is going to accomplish his purpose in salvation. That's the whole point. That is the whole point. God will accomplish his purpose in salvation no matter what system of theology you hold to. Whether it's correct or incorrect. You don't think it does. I, I, okay, that, that's fine. But consider for a second, I do. I think that it does. I see Calvinism as making... Um... If you see a system of theology as a hindrance to an advancing of the gospel, then you don't believe God's word. The gospel offer insincere. Could it be that that's why I spend time doing this? Could it be? Okay, so now... And that means you'd be spinning your wheels, sir. Now I, you have to deal with me as sincere. Now you have to deal with me as sincerely seeing a rational theological problem within Reformed theology. And now you need to answer that problem that I have. I sincerely see this issue. You need to address this issue. You need to address the sincerity of the gospel on Calvinism in a theological and rational way. And I just I don't see people doing that. 
I don't see it from the top. I'm not talking about on social media or like your, your average church going guy. From the top, I don't see them addressing this criticism of the sincerity of the gospel, even as Johnson seems to think that that's a big deal. Johnson seems to say, hey, it's wrong not to think the gospel is sincere. Exactly. It's wrong to think that the gospel isn't sincere. And, and if you have a theology that makes you have to warn people away from thinking that the gospel is sincere, maybe you should question the theology. <laughs> like, right? like go, go one more step. Like he, he kind of, he goes and, and Horton does the th- same thing. The big difference, small God, big God, big sinner, small sinner. In the article that I wrote, he goes and like he skirts around and he says it and then doesn't take another logical leap down that road. He steps in it and he he puts one foot forward and he says the criticism. He says it out loud. He asks the question, does this mean that the gospel is insincere? In, in, in other words, that's what he asks. And and it's like, okay, go one, one more. Just take another logical step and then we're going to get somewhere in our discussion. But they, they don't do it. They just control the language and say, as long as you claim that it's sincere, you're a historic Calvinist. Right. And then, then... the gospel is sincere in what God did. It's all in God's control. The gospel isn't. I don't have my my part in the gospel. If you want to say your part in the gospel is your sin. That's your part. Jesus took that upon himself so that we wouldn't suffer the penalty. God becoming man. God didn't have to do that. Does God have to save anybody? No, he doesn't. But because God cared enough in giving up of his son by the grace that he's bestowed through us, to us, through his son, he cared enough about us to say, you know what, man's going to mess up here, and I have a, I have glory that I don't share with anybody else, that I will share with man one day. We're the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. So if God's going to bring a bride to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, right, that picture there of marriage, wouldn't he want to show us what that's all about. Obviously he would. That 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 becomes a question and, and I think this is why like the, the guys who do argue against the the well meant offer, they're they're trying to say, okay, um it, it just seems logically inconsistent for us to say God sincerely desires for the salvation of non elect people. Um, and so they're they're being they're 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 going ahead and swallowing the difficult pill and just saying, as A.W. Pink says, God really doesn't love everybody, and God doesn't really want everybody to be saved. And according to Phil Johnson's definition, it seems that those are hypers. Though maybe if you pressed him in person, he would back off of it because uh, friends of his uh, fit that that description now, and he doesn't want to do that. Um, I don't know, but yeah, that, that's where I think the real tension is when it comes to this issue of hyper-Calvinism, because you've got folks who are denying the well-meant offer, meaning God doesn't really love or desire the salvation of a, a large number of people in our world. Um, and that, that does seem to be consistent with the claims of tulip 
the tulip system. Right, and, and what I see all the time is I see this kind of pious sounding speech and Prime would uh, call it sanctimonious blather. He's got like that great term, <laughs> sanctimonious blather, right? Where you say this thing that sounds pious, but if you take it a step farther, it actually makes God the author of evil. So salvation is all of God. And we could say the same thing. We would mean something totally different. We could say the same thing. But salvation is all of God. And so if you give any choice to human beings at all, that takes away the glory of God or whatever. It and does. And you have these, this pious, bounding, sanctimonious. We're worms. It's not sanctimonious. It's serious. It is serious. That is the severity of the gospel message. We are sinners in deserving of wrath, deserving of hell. We deserve that. The wages of our sin is death. But because of a free gift of God, we have eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So it's nothing pious about that. Blather that goes on with this issue. And again, it's more language control. It's, it's more how does it sound. Salvation is totally of God. What did Jonah say when he was in the belly of the whale? He realized where he was. It's a picture of Jesus Christ going to the cross and being buried in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights, right? What did Jonah say there? Salvation comes from the Lord. But if you just if you say that salvation is all of God, okay, let's take that one. It's not a logical leap. It's not a conspiracy theory. I don't need the I don't need the crazy wall with all the pictures and the you know pish pins with the strings attached. I don't need the whole thing. It's just one little logical leap forward, and it's mean that means that God has decided that the vast majority of humanity from all eternity past will not will burn in hell without any chance of uh, recovery whatsoever. Broad is the way. To destruction few are on the road that leads to the narrow way to life few that be that find it and it's like yeah. it sounds pious to say the other thing but then the logical end of it is is it doesn't protect the holiness of god it doesn't protect the well-meant offer of the gospel and and so let's discuss this okay fine you can say that other, but let's discuss this other thing over here and so often it only stays in the how it sounds, the pious soundingness of it. Um, yeah, of it. I, yeah, I think you're right on there. Uh, Peter has a good definition of a hyper-Calvinist, one who is cautiously determined to drink too much coffee. <laughs> okay, listen, that's, that's I feel attacked, <laughs> okay? It's quarantine. I've got nothing else to look forward to in my day except my second or third cup of coffee. I feel personally attacked by that, Peter. I don't appreciate it. Because <laughs> we're, we're hyper-provisionists right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I got one more. Okay, go I'm, ahead for it. I'm go for it. Kind of good. All right. Uh, so this is the third. This is the third mark of the hyper Calvinist, and this is this one is amazing to me. This one's amazing to me. And I, and I know that you kind of personally relate to this one, and, and so maybe I'm setting you up here a little bit. Okay. So he says third, mark the fact that the hyper that hyper Calvinism uh, encourages introspe introspection in the search to know whether or not one is elect. So then he says that, so that's kind of a quote that he's quoting, encourage it, that hypercalvinism encouraged introspection in the search to know whether one uh, is elect or not. So then he says, it goes on to say, assurance tends to be elusive for people under the influence of hypercalvinist teaching. Um, so, so first, I want to say that I'm so glad that most reformed churches are not, as he goes on to say in this article, barren, inert, militant, or elitist. 
you know, I'm so glad most churches aren't like that. I'm so glad most Calvinists have assurance of their salvation. I'm so glad of those things. Um, and, and Phil Johnson goes on to warn them that they will become like that if they go down this hyper-Calvinist route. That's right. I'm, I'm glad he says that. And I'm so glad that we're not in a place where a lot of Reformed churches are like that. True. However, the phrase assurance tends to be elusive is fascinating to me because on Calvinism, who's, in whose mind is contained the decision for salvation? In whose mind? God's. God decides from eternity past which individuals will be saved. So the decision Correct. for which individual will be saved is in the mind of God. Correct. We cannot know the mind of God. We cannot know the decisions he has made. Whether, so made whether or not we are saved, whether or not we are counted on the elect is couched in his mind. I can't know that. I fund Romans 8, that's how you know fundamentally cannot know that Romans 8 so how does anyone have assurance if I'll say it one more time Romans 8 it's the seal Ephesians talks about it too the Holy Spirit indwells if that theology is true yeah especially if God has ordained for you to think you're saved when you're not um, in other words if God once you to think right. you're saved, uh, yeah, the effervescent grace that Calvin speaks of, or others, you speak of people who have a faith that that uh, is a temporary type of faith or something of that nature, um, or even even somebody like in Matthew where he says, you know, they cry out to me, Lord, Lord, but do not enter the kingdom of heaven. That person on Calvinism was ordained by God to believe. They truly we're in relationship with God. They truly had uh, salvation. Um, and he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Um, on Calvinism, God ordained them to believe that they were saved when they weren't. It comes down to a heart issue. It's a heart issue. God knows the heart of man, whether he's being genuine or whether he's being sincere. We know the heart, according to Jeremiah 17, is deceitful and wicked desperately wicked only god knows the heart he tries the reins he understands the heart of man where he's really at how can you possibly know you're not one of those people it, it's it would be impossible and, and some guys and i've heard some guys say, well i would know because i know because i believe this is i said well of course you would say that because god's ordained for you to believe that you're really of his how could you possibly know that in six months from now he hasn't ordained for you to deny the faith and become an atheist and and begin to do all kinds of strange things. You, I mean, you have no control over where you're going from this point forward. God has ordained your your faith, and therefore maybe your abandonment of it later. And, and um, I hope Calvinists don't go there, but it seems to me that they do. And I, I know you've had personal experience with this. I've had personal experience with this, with personal friends of mine who have a, adopted a you know somewhat reformed view of, of theology and they go on to have just crippling crippling doubts about their own um sinfulness uh their own, that, that they are stuck in their sin these things that they keep doing these problems that they're having they are completely stuck in them and they despair they despair about their position before god because they can't know it 
and they they despair of their position in sanctification and spiritual growth because they feel like they can't do anything differently because their theology tells them they can't do anything. So uh, this I'm I'm I hope that reformed people don't go in this run and they have a blessed inconsistency. But but Phil Johnson just saying hey don't go there isn't enough. We need to have a robust conversation and we need to have robust answers to how it is that uh, reformed people can have assurance when their election is couched in the mind of God, when what is going to happen in their life, their spiritual um, growth is couched in the decree of God. How can you give people assurance and hope when these things are true? Believe the scripture. You believe it. Believe the scripture. And so I have to like know that it's true outside. You guys need to answer these questions because I know people and I'm sure so many people know people who are despairing in these things. They need to be encouraged. Well, yeah, I get messages, as you well know, Eric, you see some of them from people all over the world who who are despairing, even people, some people in the side chat over here even now um, about uh, not knowing whether they're truly loved of God or if they may have been reprobated uh, because they, they, they struggle with doubt and those kinds of things. Uh, I remember going through a period of that when I was Calvinist too, because I was dealing with some secret sin in my life. And so my first thought was, well, maybe I'm not elect because an elect person wouldn't probably deal with this secret sin until I got some counsel from a Calvinist friend of mine who said, well, the fact that you're battling, the fact that you desire uh, to get rid of the sin proves that God's working in you. And therefore you must be elect. That must be a sign of the spirit in you. So you're, you're one of the elect. So then I stopped thinking, okay, well, I'm not, I'm not a reprobate, but then why has God ordained for me to have these desires? And and therefore I think the only way I could get out of my sin and my addiction was to say, well, God take away that desire um, versus understanding God does love me. He has already provided me everything I need to, to remove sin right. from my life. But the first thing you've got to do is own your sin as Repent. yours, not mine. It's not something I'm, I'm, I'm ordaining for you to do, Leighton. This is something I don't want you to do. And you have every, every, ability to stop doing this but how do you do that through what the scripture says well confess your sin bring it into the light get help get counsel get guidance get accountability all the things that we need to do and, and you know one thing that helped me to it's actually get to the place thing. where i could do those things get help get counsel uh you know have a better discipline with spiritual disciplines and things like that, was the the, the the theology uh the knowledge that god <laughs> craig joiner leaves a little, little nice little comment there i want to read there it there is no secret a hyper calvinist is a consistent calvinist we can end the live show now sin, uh, or god wants me to be that's stuck funny. in these destructive uh -huh. patterns he doesn't want that for me at all he didn't like orchestrate the circumstances in my life for that to happen he didn't you know, <laughs> put these flowers things took that down <laughs> in place and, and make it so that I couldn't do any differently. He had nothing to do with it. It was other people who sinned against me and then my own penchant for sins and my own human weakness. He had nothing to do with that. All he wants is good things for me. There is no sense in which God wants these evil, destructive things for me. And once that took a while for me to actually believe that. But once I did, it was so freeing and hopeful and, and, and all of these things that I don't, I don't think Calvinism can consistently provide that sort of that hope uh, and that counsel to people. Yeah. Um, and, and some, some of the things that we're talking about, keep in mind that 
there is for some Calvinist, at least there is a, maybe a cognitive dissonance between some of the claims of the system itself and the outplay of how that system. Blessedly works. so. Works. Yes. Blessedly, blessedly so. so. Um, and they would, Absolutely. and some of them would probably say the same thing about us on sure. other issues. Um, sure. And so we're acknowledging that if if you're tuning in here and you're you're watching this and you're going, well, I know Calvinists, and that's not the way they are at all. And uh, you know, I've been a Calvinist for this many years, and I've not once even sure. thought about you know not evangelizing somebody, or I've never once thought that my addiction or my sin was because of a decree of God or whatever it may be. Um, don't hear me saying that because my experience was this, or because there's some antidotal. A, a story about something happening within somebody's life like that, that it's true across the board. It may not be. Um, and, it, and it's not always the case. But the fact that it is the case with some or even a good number of people is enough reason for it to be addressed. Um, and, and like I think, Eric, you said so eloquently before, when we're, when we're doing this, I was on Twitter not long ago, which I don't recommend really. <laughs> <laughs> For real, just not worth it. Just not worth it. Um, but I was on Twitter uh, the other day, and I, I was posting something about the back and forth with Ken Wilson and everything, and all the, the different stuff that's going on with that. And uh, this one guy just kind of well, I haven't me. heard about any of that. Could you please? No, just... oh, sorry. Okay. Just, just shut up. Just shut up. <laughs> I'm sorry, y'all. Just see that side of me. I, I had to to get Eric back in his place there for a second. Um, <laughs> Y'all never had me tell somebody to shut right. up, have you? Okay. Um, anyway, I posted something and uh, this guy says, are you on a campaign or something? You know, and he was rebuking uh, me making this. And I said, yeah, I, I'm on a campaign. Uh, I'm a campaign to make the, the love of God known for all people. Um, and, and this is what I was, what you were talking about is the reason that we're making a big deal of this is because we do believe it's a big deal for the genuineness and sincerity of the gospel appeal to all people, the sincerity of God's love and provision for all people, that it's not just a, a fake offer, a faux offer, if you will. It's not just a, yeah, pretending like I want this for everybody, but really I only have my select few, my elite that I... <sighs> I don't know how else to refute this other than to say that Salvation is of God. Those that will be saved, those that are to be saved, will be saved. And to make a blanket offer for everybody, yes, that's what the Word of God does. But in reality, not all people will believe. Okay? Therefore, who's in control here? God is in control. I have set aside for this. Um, we also want to, believe it or not... Um, maintain the blameworthiness of those who reject him. Um, and I, I think Calvinism, if the, the implications of Calvinism, if nothing else, strongly undermine the blameworthiness of the unbeliever because they are unbeliever, not by choice. They're an unbeliever by nature, meaning that's the way God made them. God decreed for them to be an unbeliever and they could not have done otherwise. That is the curse. I don't know how he doesn't understand. Does he understand the doctrine of original sin, meaning that through death came came into the world through Adam. The wages of sin is death. We are born sinners. We need to be redeemed. It's not impossible to understand that it's in God's mind that he's going to save some. It's a miracle that he saves anybody. If God came to this earth, and this is the question that I, I'd rather like to ask him, and I, I probably should have. I don't even know how the conversation has gone. If, 
If God came to this earth to die for one person, would that be successful? Meaning, if Jesus Christ came and died, he did, we know he did, he rose from the dead, and it was for one person, would that be sufficient enough for God to be glorified in Christ? Yes. The answer is yes. I can't think of a better excuse in the world for unbelievers than Calvinism gives them. It's almost like the article I put on a line about, okay, what if what if we judged everybody with blue eyes? Do you have blue eyes, by the way, Eric? I can't tell on the camera. You're like greenish hazily. Okay. Me, like... me too. I'm the same way. We're we're I guess green hazel eyes. Okay, so the green hazel eyes are the elect people. Okay, but if you have blue eyes or brown eyes or this this really gets to me. And he always does this. He does parallels that are not related that don't make any sense. Eyes and stuff. He does this all the time some other non-hazel eyes, then sorry, you're out. Um, and, and we treat you badly or we mistreat you as us hazel eyes, better people than you are. Everybody would find that ridiculous. Why? Because you have no control ultimately right. over the color of your eyes. Well, that's one of the reasons we hate bigotry for racism. Yeah, that's why bigotry is so ridiculous. Right? Yeah, because you're exactly. judging somebody not by the content of their character, but right. by the color of their skin or their eyes, or their hair, or their lack right. of hair, or whatever it is that they don't have any control over. Okay, so what more control does the reprobate have over his nature than does a man have over the color of their eyes or skin on Calvinism? You tell me, I mean, if you can give me a clear dis a distinction with how it is that humanity has any real sense of control over the content of their character, then on Calvinism, then I would love to hear it because I've not heard a rational explanation as to how humanity really has any control over the content of their character. They are God-haters from birth, idol factories, vipers in diapers, doomed from the womb, according to Calvin. Those are quotes from Calvinists, by the way. That's right. not just me saying it. That, right. that's, that they are their skin. One quote that sits in my mind as he describes this, Man is hopelessly lost unless God graciously saves. Take that to the bank 100%. That's the explanation. If it weren't for God's grace, we would all be lost. That's what makes grace, grace. It's the fact that we don't deserve God's love. We don't deserve his attention. We don't deserve, we don't deserve his love towards us. And there will be some that will, this will pass over them to their own detriment. In color is determined from birth as much as their nature to hate God is determined from birth, and they have no control over that. Again, mankind is cursed. I don't know why. Does he forget that? To me, that removes the blameworthiness of the sinner. And so the reason we're making... The soul that sins shall what? Die such a strong appeal against Calvinism is not because we just hate Calvinists and we just don't have things better to do and that we're just trying to be mean and we're just angry with everybody. Now, this talk that we're talking about the genuineness of the gospel, the genuineness and sincerity of God's love for all people, the, the glory of God as a God of love, uh, that the sacrifice of Christ was. God is a God of love. Yes, but he's a God of justice. He's going to punish all sin. Made for all people that he, 
he genuinely wants all people to be saved. He's not tricking some people into thinking they're saved when they're really not. All of those kinds of things that really uh, make the Bible seem duplicitous in a lot of ways. Um, and, and we're trying to also maintain, believe it or not, the blameworthiness of the sinner. That the sinner recognizes that when you reject God, when you reject the clear off of the gospel, you're to blame for that. You can't do oh, yeah. what Derek Webb does as the atheist now who used to be a Calvinist writing songs in favor of Calvinism, even with Cademan's call back in the day, who says things like, well, it's really not up to me. I'm in the grave next to Lazarus, he said, and if God wants me, he'll call me out of the grave. And I'm open for it. If he wants me, then he'll call me out of the grave. But really, I have no control over that. I, and I think one of the choice. problems one of the problems there in reaching uh, the ears when we say these things like that. I liken this to like the Trinity. God sovereignly saves yet holds man responsible. That is just the nature of it. That is the truth. Like it or you don't like it, question it or you question it. I don't question to the pot, the, the potter because I'm the clay. I don't question him. He made me. This is how it's supposed to be. Romans 9 should clear that up for him, and it certainly it doesn't. Romans 9 has not made it to his, to, in his mind, Romans 9 doesn't resonate. And we're on two hours here. I think I'm going to cut this short. They're obviously, because I'm behind in what they're going on with, they're about, where is he now? He's about a half hour more. So he's been going on for two and a half hours. Reaching here. the ears of our Reformed brothers and sisters. So they are still, they are still talking about this. So. I'm gonna cut it short for now. If I'll return, if I want to return to this, I will. But this ends the review of the video. I'm, I'm strapped for time. Right now, it is. What time is it? It's just about five o'clock Eastern time here on Sunday. So that's the review here, a two-hour review here, of Leighton Flowers and Eric Kemp speaking on what is a hyper-Calvinist. Uh, what does that entail? And he tends to lump it from what I've gathered. He tends to lump in some of these guys who we all know uh, of trying to dissuade them to uh, avoid hyper Calvinism. And I understand the idea. This is just closing thoughts here. Um, personally, I don't subscribe to the label Calvinism myself. And obviously he says he doesn't either, but he's on the other side of it, meaning that he's, to me, from what he says, he doesn't say he's an Arminian based on previous videos, but the, the language of what he incorporates and in the way he speaks, to me, sounds like he's an Arminian. That God loves everybody and has a generic love for everybody, and it's up to them to accept the gospel and to believe in Jesus Christ. No, I don't believe that. I believe God graciously saves and makes us alive to believe the gospel and gives us the faith to believe. That's what I believe the scripture says, because the scripture says it. Right, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. That speaks to it's in Ephesians one and two. There it also speaks to the foreknowledge of God that we're chosen before the foundation of the earth. Okay, so Romans speaks to this. All of these epistles have an instance, instance of which they speak to the sovereignty of God in salvation. You're going to find it. Once you find it, it, it it's everywhere in the New Testament and even in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. So my closing thoughts here, um, they're just trying to unpackage what a hyper-Calvinist is, right, that goes to the extremes of Calvinism. Me, I believe the doctrines of grace. It's God's, it's all, all of God. 
Man is responsible, yes. We have to understand that. We're responsible for our own sin. The, the unbeliever who doesn't think about this, there are people that are on the face of the earth that have lived have never heard the gospel. Never heard it. They've lived, they've died. Do they believe in Jesus Christ? No. The message was never given to them. These are people. These are people that have existed and have died. You can't tell me that they're not one person before, or all, all from time past until now, that every single one has heard the gospel. Not all will. This is why this is what makes salvation special, because it's God's work. It's God who gets the glory. And it, uh, these men come close, but yet they're still so far. Uh, I mean, Mr. Flowers used to believe in the doctrines of grace, and now he, he doesn't seem like he subscribes to it, and he's struggling there. And then my main beef with him, really, what I have with him, is that he uses these outside analogies to with the Scripture, and he just doesn't stay with the Scripture. If you stay with the Scripture, you're going to be consistent. So I don't know what he says in the latter half of this. I'm cutting him out at, I don't even know what time I'm at here. Right now it's got like 30 minutes left to go. But we've gone on all this time for about two, almost two hours here. So I'm going to have to somehow pick this back up myself, and we'll talk about it another time. But that ends this review of Leighton Flowers speaking on hyper-Calvinism. And, um, yeah, uh, my personal take, just in short, stay with the Bible. You'll never go wrong. You'll never go wrong with knowing that God is sovereign in all things. And to argue that point, and to say that we're not uh, Calvinists or people that believe in the doctrines of grace, the sovereignty of God, are not evangelistic, or it causes a... I understand what he's trying to say, that it does happen, but that's that's not the focus of all people that believe this way. And I believe Phil Johnson has an accurate understanding here of what's going on. So that ends the review. Hopefully it has been useful for you. Um, this will probably publish later in the week, uh, so stay tuned here on the Bible Thumping Wingnut. This has been an episode of the Godcast with Josh Fritz. God bless you guys. I'll see you guys here next time on the Godcast. <laughs>